right, you know what that sound means. I am Mitch Maley with Brayton Times, and we are back with another edition of the Brayton Times podcast. I am joined by TBT local government reporter Don Kitterman, and we've had quite a week in Manatee County politics, haven't we? We have again. So we started Tuesday with the county commission meeting on homelessness and affordable housing. And I'll tell you what, this is an issue that is rapidly changing in terms of dynamics. And one of the things that, you know, I wrote a column a little while back about, um, you know, the policies and having to be careful that you don't make yourself a magnet for homeless communities. And we, we've, we've heard some of that uh, Tuesday, but the one of the most shocking metrics was the understanding that uh, the homelessness organizations in the area are now dealing with something very rare, which is that about a quarter of, uh, or no, excuse me, I think it was like three quarters of their newly homeless were first time homeless, and which is not typically uh, the ratio. So um, it's typically much lower and it's typically people that fall in and out of the cycle. Um, and I've often explained to people that there is very rarely a relationship between housing costs and homelessness. Uh, there, there does happen to be often a relationship between high wealth areas, where there's a higher cost of living, let's say San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York City, and homelessness. But it's always been extremely rare that the homeless in those cities became homeless in those cities. Uh, they often go there because there's more wealth there. It is easier to panhandle it. And there's often li more liberal cities that have lax regulations on public camping and so forth. Um, what we're seeing now is a totally different dynamic. When, with the housing market in Manatee County and Florida and really nationally, but but here I think we're, we're really kind of ground zero for it. You know, I did a story re last, my column last Sunday on, uh, you know, that we have now the, the ninth highest rents in the country. Um, Manatee County in specific is one of the hardest hits in the state of Florida. And now we're starting to see people literally become homeless because they're seeing rent increases uh, or losing the rental because somebody wants to flip the property. Um, I'm constantly seeing people on Facebook that I know personally talking about the idea that, you know, hey, uh, one friend's, um, fortunately, they were able to find a, uh, they're in the 55 plus category, so they're able to find something, but uh, they were in a situation where they had a long-term rental. They had rented for, uh, God, about 10 years, and then the owner died. And when the kids took over the rental, mm -hmm. they were like, hey, you know, th this can rent for twice as much. Um, and, th th you know, they had no loyalty to the situation. The other part is that some people are just getting increases like that from landlords or people that own a house are saying, hey, this might be the time to cash out. You know, this was a good investment and it's good to have that monthly income. But man, if I can make a few hundred thousand dollars in in one swipe and be done with it, not worry about renters and maintenance and you know all the things that go along with it. So you're seeing that happen. We're also seeing that Florida leads the country in vacant units. And what they think is causing that are so many institutional buyers who are buying on a hold and flip strategy and they're not even bothering to rent it. They're just waiting until it increases another 20 or 30% and they don't wanna deal with having to get a renter out. They wanna be fluid and be able to sell it as is property um, to family or whatever the case is. So all of those things are changing that dynamic drastically and we're seeing a new kind of homeless population 
Uh, of course, you know, we still have the, the abundance of, you know, previously you had about 82% uh, were either addicts and or untreated mental illness. And now we're actually seeing families in different situations that are becoming homeless because of the rapid increase in housing prices. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that the special meeting on Tuesday, um, there was some mention and discussion prior to the setting of that meeting of it being broken into two separate meetings, one a whole day designated to the homelessness um, issues and then a whole day dedicated to the affordable housing um, and workforce housing issue. Now, I do think that certainly a whole day could could be spent on both issues, but for anyone who watched the entirety of that meeting, I think there was a benefit in seeing both matters discussed in 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 parallel and tandem. How would you describe that uh, one after the other in that meeting? Because as you've described, at this point, particularly maybe more so than ever, they're very related to one another. Yeah, yeah. I used to, in fact, I used to complain in the past when they would lump those together because they were such disparate issues mm -hmm. and they really didn't have a lot of policy overlap. And now, for example, on Thursday, one of the things that uh, they had given direction on Tuesday was to, uh, for staff to look at whether or not they could expand the uh, motel vouchers they were using as transitional housing. Uh, because the other thing is Manatee County just has very, very few uh, shelter beds, you know, where, where, you know, you've got the Salvation Army, um, you, you've got a very limited amount of time in which, or excuse me, spaces in which somebody can go in and, and, you know, sleep with a roof over the head temporarily. Uh, so that they were able to transition some COVID grant money. Um, they had already maxed out a previous community block grant that they use on the, the re, rapid rehousing. They were able to shift some COVID money to expand that program. And now they have two more. Uh, so I guess St. Vincent de Paul was the only one using the motel vouchers, but I think uh, Salvation Army and One Stop had uh, revised their application in order to do that. But, you know, one of the things that I think stood out for all the, you know, sort of presentations and everything that we're giving and in good information that came out Tuesday, uh, as George Cruz put it on affordable housing, there's only so many levers you can pull. And I'd actually like to get George back in to talk about this issue more closely because that's somewhere where he has a lot of professional experience. But what, what, the, what the real unfortunate reality seems to be, there's not a whole lot governments can do when it comes to workforce housing beyond, you know, they could absolutely enforce the affordable, uh, affordable housing component of our code, which they don't. Um, they can, but, but again, even the formulas that we're using for affordable at this point, it's usually based on a percentage of the median and, and that, mm -hmm. you know, is a skyrocket number. So, you know, what, what technically counts as affordable, you know, isn't really workforce inventory. If you're talking about, you know, an EMT trying to buy a house for, you know, a household with that kind of income. Um, so outside of the government actually getting in the house building, uh, business and, and building, um, you know, public housing units that have a, a income component, uh, which we've, we've never really done a lot of outside of like the really low end. And I've always said that before, we've kind of done a good job through HUD and different organizations or, or you know, policy uh, funding that people on the very, very bottom 
you know, who, who are disabled or, or have, you know, no income for one reason or another. We've done better at that always than we have for the working poor. And that seems to be the one that's really, really difficult to impact policy-wise is how do you, in this unique economy that we have, where there's a tremendous amount of wealth, but not a lot of industry making that wealth here, um, you do not, so you, you, there is no shortage. And that's the problem of the, you know, when county commissioners make that nonsensical argument that, oh, we've got to build, we've got to give all these, you know, entitlements away to developers and we've got to, you know, rezone and we've got to give them compliant amendments because there's a housing crisis. That's not helping. That's, that's not creating a house for a teacher. Um, the market house or price in Manatee County, there apparently is no shortage of wealthy people who are willing to pay a premium for a home here. And that is keeping the market price very, very high. And there is not enough industry here for the working class to be able to compete in the housing market. So for people who haven't bought into that market yet, or let's say they got turned upside down in the last housing bubble in 06 or 08, and they're not an owner right now, the opportunity, so if you don't have capital that you're bringing from a big windfall that you had off your sale into a, you know, you, you know, a house sale, a house purchase, or you don't um, you know, have enormous amount of wealth that you're importing from outside the area, you're not really a candidate. And that is the, that, that is the real unfortunate reality of a free market-based housing market is that you can often find your community getting in that place where, yeah, there's enough demand for all these expensive houses, but not enough affordable housing for any of the people who provide the services that are absolutely essential to a community. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was, I think, evidenced a little bit by the outcome of the meeting where in the morning session addressing homelessness, which there were some surprising things I learned during that session uh, concerning locally how we are or are not effectively addressing the issue. There were some things that I was surprised to, to hear. Um, but the morning session, there were ultimately kind of actionable steps that motions were made and approved by the board to do in terms of, um, you know, uh, agreeing to do that, the report, to get a survey on what are we doing, what's working, what can we do, um, and the need, and then creating positions relevant to that, creating, which, I mean, I, I don't think they really needed a motion for it, but the, the idea of the task force, so mm -hmm. taking those pieces and parts in the community that are already um, functioning on their own to address uh, and bringing them together to, to have huddle sessions, right. you know, to really uh, better address and work together. But in the second half of the meeting, there weren't really any that I recall any actual like actionable steps that were taken. Because that's the right, right. That's Ever. very emblematic. That's of the what issue. I'm saying. Yes. That's what I'm saying. It and is a lot easier to say, "Hey, we're going to have a homelessness coordinator mm -hmm. now," and we, we're, yep. you know, and that's a good point. You know, they had full time equivalent positions, you know, FTE spots in the budget that were already allocated mm -hmm. that were vacant. That they were able to say, "Okay, we're getting by without this." you know, position being filled. We think we continue to do that. Let's transition this position into something that, that's else. That's part of what surprised me. I was a little surprised to hear that we didn't already have that person, yeah. that we didn't yeah. have a task force, if you well, will, they, that we didn't have communication what, what is happening. It? Uh, community services has always kind of been 
the default, mm-hmm. you know, um, when it, when it's fallen to those things. Uh, but yes, that, that was a very good point when Commissioner Whitmore brought up, you know, who do you call? Mm-hmm. You know, and Commissioner Ball was like, code enforcement, just like, eh, wrong answer, like not even close. Um, the point is there isn't a one person to call. Right, well, you, you, you call code enforcement to report the violation of the camp right, in the, the camp, woods, right? right? right exactly. You call code enforcement because you've got not how do I get this person? You've into got businesses in your community right. who are calling you up and saying, "Hey, this is not good for our business. Yeah. Do something about this." And so you would call code enforcement. But yes, code enforcement is not an intervention yes. arm. They're not there to uh, support or or direct toward uh, supportive services or, or and, and that's again one of the things I've always said about homelessness is that. It, it is a symptom. It is not an issue in and mm-hmm. of itself. And that's the, I think that's what we get wrong. Uh, I would really, really, really recommend that everyone who has an interest in this issue read the book San Francisco. It's by uh, Michael Schellenberger, who's actually running as an independent for governor of California this year. And um, it was fascinating because he kind of dispels a lot of the myths about homelessness and, and this same basically echoing some of the things that, that I've been writing for a long time. Uh, so I guess some of it is just that I like it because it, <laughs> he thinks what I think, but the, um, no, but the reality is it really isn't this like monolithic thing that, you know, like cancer, you know, it, it is a symptom of a, whether it's untreated mental illness, whether it's addiction, whether it's all kinds of other things. And historically it's rarely, a slip through the crack story. They happen where somebody, you know, without a great social network uh, or family support network, you know, um, so, you know, people have a, a varying degrees of family, whether it be for a good reason, because of abusive relationships, whatever. But then some people are only children of only children, you know, and there's not a, a, uh, a, a large, you know, well mm-hmm. of, of family members to draw from. Um, and the reality is that, you know, we were always really good at those cases. Those weren't that hard. Meaning if you get somebody who fell on bad times and it was, you know, they're working in a low wage industry and transmission goes on their car and then they get sick. And next thing you know, they're behind, they're getting evicted and they crash on somebody's couch within that person moves and then they're sleeping in their car for a little bit. And it's kind of spirals into homelessness without addiction or mental health. That was rare. And it was something we were really good at. There were a lot it was always kind of easy to get that person into the right kind of transitional housing and, and support services so that you can re-enter society. Uh, that what we're seeing right now. And that's why, again, we have to, we have to, this is where the overlap is policy wise and why we still have to approach those differently is that that population is where you need to have the affordable housing for. We just simply don't have enough units like we used to. It used to be matching someone with a job and a rental that was affordable with that job was feasible. Now it's becoming good luck. You know, where on earth are you gonna get somebody in a $15 an hour job into then a rental in Manatee County? I don't know of it. Uh, I don't know if you'd find one, let alone if you have hundreds or thousands of people in that category. So we're gonna have, we're still going to have to look at that as two different approaches because what we also then heard on Tuesday was the myriad of different kind of cases that you have in terms of addiction and the problem with there not being enough, um, 
you know, uh, space at the detoxes, um, or that just, you know, a lot of people refuse to detox and then that becomes an issue. Uh, you know, that's a whole different kind of ball of wax. And I guess having that, that policy person hopefully will, will give us a good job of identifying that and maybe pointing toward different solutions, uh, whatever they may be. Yeah. Well, and I think, uh, back to my saying, I was surprised to learn some of that, um, to learn some of some of the steps that hadn't been taken still needed to be taken so the sheriff deputy outreach person um i was just looking up her name so i pronounce it right well i may still not pronounce <laughs> it right but i can at least read it um joy jude jewett i joy, believe yes, yes um it's it occurred to me watching the meeting why did we not have the foresight at the time that her position was made and she was appointed to this task to be sure that she had the support she needed to do the job she was being hired to do. Um, and, and I understand and am sympathetic to the fact that uh, while this issue did not, you know, homelessness did not, or the increase in, did not occur overnight, um, or, or I should say, it didn't. It didn't get to the point we're at. Um, it wasn't at the point we're at. Maybe say a year ago, right? It's been accelerating for the reasons you described. However, it did not in in its entirety become something new overnight. The, that part has not been a, a rapid uh, revealing to us. So, where? Why were we? I just was surprised to learn <laughs> that there was not more communication, coordination, and uh, support positions that were at a minimum created and recognized as being needed when the sheriff's officer, the sheriff outreach officer position was made. That, well, that I was think, surprising to me. <laughs> well, I think it's because you have different organizations. So, you know, you can't really do more than that from the sheriff's department, you can't create, you know, the the service resources. Um, and, you know, I've seen Joy Jewett on a number of occasions, uh, and I will tell you she's phenomenal. We're very, very mm -hmm. lucky to have her. Um, but I think that, I think what you heard from a lot of those other uh, stories Tuesday, including so many of hers, was just how how difficult it is to have a success story. And I think that's kind of why the resources are seen sometimes as, as I don't know, throwing good money after bad, so to speak. Um, well, now that that position for Joy, mm -hmm. that was that was, I'm assuming, created by the Board of County Commission. I mean, it had to be approved by them. I know it's a sheriff's position. Right, but I think they get some funding from the county on it. Um, so maybe they maybe it was the sheriff's initiative to create that position. I guess that's what I'm thinking is, is either which way that that may have occurred. Um, that maybe would have been a great opportunity to have a discussion or begin looking at what supplemental or supportive additional. Well, <laughs> and I think most of what we fund at One Stop is thought to be that. So One Stop has been the go-to place for all of those services. Um, it is certainly overwhelmed, right. uh, you know, and look, this becomes a, a challenging thing. You know, there was a, a someone 
I think it was Commissioner Van Ostenbridge put it very succinctly the other day of, you know, there, there has to be a balance between, you know, people who want to do the right thing and want to participate in society and businesses that have legitimate gripes against, you know, the, the, uh, you know, a couple examples we got this week of, Hey, you know, there's six, you know, drunken homeless men hanging mm-hmm. out here in front of my store every single day. Uh, it scares customers away. It's, you know, they harass people. Um, there, there has to be a conversation of, of, you know, how much resources you put toward, you know, people who many in that tr- more troubled population don't want to be helped beyond, you know, Hey, you know, I'd love food or a place to sleep as long as I can continue doing exactly what I'm doing each mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. And that becomes the real problem. And that that's a real challenge for society. When you, when you want to have a society in which, you know, you have some form of equity and you also have empathy, but at the same time, like how much do you ask of the community in terms of how much do you want us to fund for a population that is belligerently not participating in society? You know, and, and, and we all know that, I think if you've dealt with those populations, that they're, again, that symptom of homelessness has a lot of different causes. And one of the big ones is whether it's addiction or submitting to, you know, I just don't want to participate anymore. And then you have to ask the society, okay, with that equity and empathy, you know, how equitable is it? How many resources do we have to put toward recycling the same people through the same services that just are not succeeding in participating in society in any kind of meaningful way. And they're really draining the resources of the productive people who are funding all of that, you know? So the, the people who are paying the ever increasing property taxes that go up every time you get a higher assessment and are pouring money into the community in, in a variety of different ways, uh, optional sales taxes, optional millage taxes for school, you know, this is a community where, for Florida in particular, you, you have to pay your fair share. Uh, and if you're renting, those you know costs are passed along to you in the rent as well, which is one of the reasons, you know, what why you know rents were what they were at before they went, you know, into the stratosphere. So that's an important conversation. And none of those things are free. And there is a sizable, belligerently homeless population that causes most of the challenges in the community, you know, well, but, but we did also hear not to make assumptions or be be uh, hopeless or uh, give up on someone. Let's say we we did hear um, you know testimony of individuals who it took a year mm-hmm. or a year plus to finally reach this person in terms of getting them to. Uh, enroll in a program and stick to it. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, in Commissioner Van Austin Bridge, when he brought up that point, and I don't disagree that, you know, there there comes a point, like, and how do you, how do you sort that out? Uh, but he, I believe that he kind of suggested, well, you know, after time one, two, three, kick them out of the county. <laughs> that is not, hey, that's not a feasible option, unfortunately. I'm pretty sure Sarasota tried to do that. I remember the scandal of, uh, what was it? Sarasota, out, meanest. Out, out, right. uh, or outlawing homelessness. Right, it it right. didn't go well for them. Um, 
Well, but I'll tell you what, there's also, and that's why I recommend this book. And one of the things what that I was a little bit worried about on Tuesday, and again, that book is San Francisco by Michael Schellenberger. Um, there is also an industry that has grown around homelessness. And there's a lot of people that make a good living servicing the homeless. And they've got a lot of good ideas on how to spend money in order to offer those services but there isn't really accountability for success. And like, like you just said, a lot of times it takes, you know, one person, almost a one-to-one -one type interaction right. or one-to-three type interaction in order to give all the resources available over the course of a year or two to get somebody to stick to the things they need. And you get an occasional success story, but boy, that's expensive mm -hmm. to do it that way. And when you look at the numbers of homeless and say, well, can we afford to, you know, do that for all of them? Um, if it takes a year, two years, three years, probably not. Well, but at this point, uh, what you were saying from the meeting was, what did, what did you say? It was three-quarter, though, our first time the, the, home. Right. So, there, so, so this exactly. is a different situation well, and that's why again, yes, now. And that's why it's so important, I think, to have a approach that respects the very different ways that people could wind up with this symptom of homelessness, mm -hmm. the symptom of whatever the problem is. And if it is economic uh, misfortune, which which we're now seeing more and more of, we have, one, that's easier because you don't have to, that person's not going to take a year. You know what I mean? Imagine right. yourself in that situation. You're going to do whatever you've got to do to get you and your kids back under a roof, Right. Um, you're not going to like start and stall, start and stall, start and stall. I don't hear from you for in a couple months and I hear back from you. So we're better at that. But then that goes back to that second half of the meeting when there was very little action taken, as you pointed out. And I think that is a very good, you know, emblematic uh, uh, encapsulation of this issue that when it comes to just like, hey, let's try to get somebody into One Stop or into Salvation Army or into a motel or something like that. Uh, we're, we're pretty good at that, at offering them. A lot of people don't take it. But when it comes to the person who just needs an affordable housing unit, and that's all that's really separating them from, from homelessness and being rehomed, uh, we don't have nearly as many options. And that's and, the part we have to wrestle and, with. And many of the... Um I guess studies uh, reporting that I have read over time addressing homelessness. I think I mentioned it in another podcast. Uh, there was a really great one, somewhat recent, comparing two counties and their approach to uh, their area's homelessness um, issues. And, and, and one county used like a um, transitional uh, more so heavily weighted on transitional and counseling type programs, and the other worked more with a um, permanent rehoming and and housing, uh, and and the they what they found was and and I have seen this elsewhere pointed out in things that I have read on the issue is that transitional housing may have its part or or a role, but ultimately it is not as effective or or will not be the fix to. Well, hold on. It cannot replace I think, I think the problem, permanent housing. I think the problem in even presenting it that way is now we're not talking, we're not respecting the idea of it being a symptom. So I think you'd have to look at for which of those populations would that be true? Right. Because one of the things that that is very demonstrable. Which could be great for a case manager to assess. Sure. 
Um, one thing that's very demonstrable that we do have lots I of data. I believe that's another position we just got. That we have lots of data on is that when it comes to addicts and the mentally ill, mm -hmm. that, that what was a you know, until very recently, maybe 82% of the homeless population roughly with overlap. Obviously you have a lot of mentally ill, untreated mental illness that then is self-treated with, with illicit drugs um, leading to addictions. However, the housing first model on that, we have demonstrable efforts that that's been a complete failure. That has been an enormous expensive failure. The idea of, well, you gotta get into a house first so that they could fix these other problems. Um, the reality is what we've seen is you have to get the person clean and sober first. And that's where the transitional housing, mm -hmm. it, again, it's not always effective because clean and sober is a really hard thing to succeed at. So, the, and that's usually where it falls apart. But the idea that that population is gonna do better with a permanent housing solution has been de demonstrably false. So you, the hard part again is that until somebody makes a decision, I'm going to get sober and mm -hmm. I'm I'm ready to do this. There's very little that you can do support wise, but you can spend a lot of money and waste a lot of money, and that's right. what I see a lot in some of these uh, in this you know sort of homelessness industry, which is there is no real plan that ends with transitioning them out, and that's that's what is so frustrating. And and all my years in volunteering with the issue. That's what I'd always see is why do I keep seeing the same people? Why do I keep seeing the same people on the same corners coming in for the same mm -hmm. soup lines eight years later? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's been no opportunity. And then you learn, well, that's what this really is. It's just a way to say we're doing something. The person doesn't want to change. We feel better about, you know, whatever we're, we're volunteering our time with. But all we're kind of doing is enabling a reality in which this person can continue to not participate in society, not pay in, but take out. And there are some people in that population of homelessness. And unfortunately, the more you deal with it, the more you find out it's a large number that are content with that. That as long as I don't have to show up for a job, as long as I don't have to listen to somebody you know, that I don't want to, as long as I don't have to do any of those things or deal with any of those problems, um, I'm happy to, to, you know, camp for my home and show up at the soup kitchens and everything for my food and show up at the, um, pa kitchen pantries and stuff for, for stuff I can take with me. Um, there are people that, that adopt that lifestyle, so to speak. And, you know, one of the people that, that sort of got me into, to the activism in the beginning would always say, well, you know, you gotta remember nobody chooses to be homeless. And we say that over and over again, but the reality is it's like, well, no, nobody chooses it in the sense of if you say, well, hey, you can have that lifestyle and not do anything you don't want to do and we'll give you a home too. They'll be like, yeah, sure, give me the home instead of the tent. But when you ask them to give up that sort of independence that they maybe become very, very attached to and say, well, now your life's gonna change. Now there's an alarm clock. And now there's, you know, you gotta get a shower, get dressed and be at this building by this time. And you've gotta listen to this guy and, you know, or this gal and do what they tell you to do. And, um wait for your paycheck and then spend it wisely and, and budget for things. That's the part where it's like, yeah, well, I don't want to do that. And that, that unfortunately, it's sort of politically incorrect to talk about it, but as somebody with a lot of experience volunteering in that industry, um, I will tell you that is more of the norm than the exception. I, I'm definitely looking forward to um, hearing and, and uh, watching future meetings 
on this topic, especially uh, post the study we've now we're now going to go forward with. Um, and the gentleman who spoke at the beginning, he was with Suncoast something. I can't remember his name and the full name of the the organization. And I believe that he said that he spent many years working with the Salvation Army in Sarasota. Yeah, yeah. And um, I believe he also uh, something I think. He also referenced the study that Sarah, because Sarasota had done the same thing, and he had shared some of the results, um, and I c- couldn't possibly quote them right now off the cuff, but in summary, Sarasota has done better. They have seen improvements. There are things they have now put into place and programs and systems they are using that are making a difference and are you know reaching people and changing people's lives. So I, I'm very curious to learn more kind yeah. of about what you're Sar- Sarasota is also about. a cautionary tale because they also spent about a million dollars on their first uh, consultant <laughs> that, um, and it went over like a lead balloon. So um, I think this study, if this I was recall, different, it was only 75. Yeah. This, yeah. This was a different thing. And, and didn't they say we should, ha- it should only take about 90 days for a report to yeah, come back yeah, on the, that. Well, so, they said, I mean, that's the, not like way. That's what away. they explained. That process was that uh, it was a female consultant. She came in for three months, observed everything, mm-hmm. Uh, did kind of an audit of all their services and then came back with that. Um, I think George Cruz had a good point when he said, well, you know, if that was done, can't we kind of just look at what the best practices were and what's working for them? We might not need quite, you know, that. And maybe we could, we we could start putting that money into services instead of into, into reports. And look, that's relatively small compared to a million dollar, you know, consultancy. Mm -hmm. Um, But, that's the thing I think we got to be careful about. And that that usually the things that people from the homelessness industry recommend are throw money at it. Throw money at it. And and hey, guess what? I've got some suggestions for you on where to throw it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and to uh, circle back to um, the point that I made about there being no actionable steps taken mm-hmm. in the second portion, uh, I want to clarify that my saying that is not intended to take away from. Um, I guess, what were they, suggestions, directives that that were brought up, mm-hmm. you know, for the staff to either continue or begin research on to return with an actionable step yeah. toward, toward yeah. that. Um, yeah, it's not like they're not trying. Everybody would like to solve right. this problem. The point is, it's, it's just, it's not a problem with a whole lot of policy mm-hmm. options. Yes, I, well, and overall, I felt like um, Commissioner Servia and Commissioner Cruz both definitely, I guess, quote unquote, did their homework. Yeah. They came with, you know, a specific set list. I'm, it wasn't quite clear to, clear to me. I don't know if it was to you. I thought that Commissioner Cruz said at one point, because there was a moment in time where Satcher sort of pushed back on this. Hey, if we've already got, you know, if we already know what we're doing here, then what are we even discussing? Why are we getting presenters? What a waste of our their time, our time. Let's just vote on what the plan is. And I I believe Cruz responded to him by saying, you know, hey, we all got an email suggesting we bring our suggestions or potential actionable steps to the table on these issues. It's not my fault I made a list. It's not my fault I did the homework. Um, Well, it seemed like Commissioner Satcher had an ulterior motive in that meeting because he he tended to... Distracted anyway. Very distracted. He took the... uh, He took the issue in a different direction uh, on about, I think, five or six occasions. And I think some of that was in response to your reporting last (laughs) week on the CareNet issue. I would say so. And uh, he wanted to make 
a point that I, I think some political grandstanding that we're that we're are um, bias against faith-based community organizations, and that led to your reporting this week to show how sort of misunderstood his his understanding of it was, <laughs> for lack of a better, friendlier way to say it. Yeah, I mean, because I spent so much time on the CareNet reporting, uh, I maybe had a different perspective, accurate or not. Maybe, maybe I'm jumping to conclusions, but the takeaway that I got from much of what, um, and, and let's be clear, the you said he had a how did you phrase that a, a kind of a different take or a spin-off on the conversation it was a very thin line which connected what he repeatedly yeah, that, wanted right, to right, talk about right. and what they were there he was to kind of hijacking with. the meeting <laughs> really for was. his own agenda <laughs> he really was but the takeaway that i got was that what he was offering was kind of a defense of his decision. He even brought up AOC at some point. How does she get into a county commission meeting? <laughs> well, I'm not, honest, honest to God, I have in my, what, 13 years of covering Manatee County politics, I have not seen one local official invoke as many state and national figures. No, excuse me. All of them combined over all those years have not invoked as many as Commissioner Satcher has in his first term and so Commissioner far. Commissioner Cruz or Commissioner Van Ostenbridge uh, yeah, yeah, does yeah, it yeah. as well. Yeah, he's uh, he's second place with it for sure. <laughs> uh, both of them are, are one and two on the all time list. But um, but yeah. So the takeaway that I got was that he was really trying to lay the groundwork to justify his motion to you know uh, afford CareNet funding, millage funding, or excuse me, uh, children's services millage funding to CareNet outside of the process that exists to, to, for nonprofits to receive such funding by saying the advisory board is um, inefficient and, uh, like you said, biased towards religious nonprofits. Uh, Against, he, he really kind of painted them like this shady uh underbelly organization to come up or something. <laughs> right and that like you get the impression that like build with pedophiles people are just like plucked off the street right, at random right, right. to sit on this board and you only know. they don't go to church it, it was it was very weird but again not surprising because like you said um commissioner satcher has expressed many times over that he has a level of i guess paranoia where he there there's this out to get us yeah. kind of narrative well, that's very that big runs in, in his the head. evangelical community. Uh, that whole narrative of, you know, everybody's anti-religion. The establishment is all anti-religion, which is nonsensical because we do have the separation of church and state, which errs toward the church in every single session, uh, uh, you know, um, manner that you can imagine. So, I mean, the idea that, religion is somehow disadvantaged in American culture is, is absurd. Well, in his, his email response, which was included in my previous Sunday reporting um, to the CEO of CareNet after receiving her email declining to um, complete the process to receive the funding. So she, she did, did tweet your column, by the way. I don't know if she Who tweeted did? the CEO of CareNet. I had no idea. Yeah. Well, that... That's wonderful because then that is a roundabout way of saying that I was accurate. I think so, yeah. So because there um, was no commentary on it, there was no like disputing. It was just a straight tweet. 
Ex- no text. Excellent. I'll have to look that up. Maybe I'll go follow them on Twitter. I didn't even know. Um, but so in his email response, he says, uh, he references how it's a cautionary tale to anyone daring to disagree with alt-left activists. And based on my last Sunday reporting and based on what was unfolding from Satcher's seat anyways, in the special meeting Tuesday, I think the cautionary tale here that he's missing is that there is a reason and a purpose um, and function of certain, um, you know, advisory committees, citizen committees, that they really uh, kind of fill in, especially with the Children's Services Advisory Board, they really fill in this uh kind of the space between the nonprofits seeking investments and the board approving those investments to their to their organization with a whole lot of checks and balances which is important absolutely. which is very yes. important because it's very easy for a government to throw money at nonprofits and say as Satcher showed yes. us this is what we're doing to solve this problem. We're throwing money to all these. And, oh, by the way, let's not look at who sits on these boards, who works for the organizations, mm-hmm. any of these potential conflicts. Or, or their results yes, or yes. their let's plan. Let's not hold accountable. Or... Uh, let's just throw money and say that we're doing something. And we're also sort of another big Republican trope. We're privatizing it in the sense that we're not creating a job with all the legacy costs and everything goes with it. We're instead, you know, using organizations are already there. The problem is though, just as you, as you sort of previewed that there's no accountability. And mm-hmm. then you find out once somebody looks, it's like, Hey, they're getting a lot of public funding. What are they actually doing with that? Mm-hmm. And is that a good use of taxpayer money? And some of them don't want you looking real hard at that. And that's why they maybe don't take public funding. Well, and, and one of one of Satcher's arguments in the meeting was that, well, it comes as no surprise that religious nonprofits wouldn't want the um, government uh, pulling all the levers on how they. And I'm thinking, what does religion have to do with that? What what is that? No, that's that's a symptom of not being able to, you know, work within the accountability system and structure that plenty of other organizations seem to have right. success within. If you don't want to be audited, you don't get the money. No problem. Don't say that that has any or sort of you, bias. Or if you don't it. want to be reimbursed right. for services provided that you, you know, I mean, there's, there's and, 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 and it, for CareNet's sake, it may have had nothing to do with any of those points of the agreement. The the deal breaker for them may have very well been the non-discrimination uh, inclusion because mm-hmm. it, to take public funding, yeah. you you know you have to abide by the laws, right. and it, it would make sense. Yeah, that, faith-based organizations, it's going to be very hard to right, be non-discriminatory. They, don't, they, they sure. may want to hire, mm-hmm. you know, other employees to work to provide these services that are in alignment yeah. spiritually they might, with they the may organization. Have, yeah, and they the, may have you know requirements uh, on that sense that they want to maintain. And and I think it, I think. Uh, it seemed evident to me that somewhere along the line, this was not the, the fact that there would be this written agreement with these with the specifics that were contained in those 13 pages. It sure seems like Karenette, uh was caught off guard 
you know, they, they weren't expecting that. It hadn't been communicated to them, right. which again goes back to that cautionary tale of going outside the process because had they applied- Through the CSAB. Right, right. there would have been that sort of support to them as well. And conversations and yeah, all because those Karenet, Because Karenet did ultimately, in the application they submitted for the funding Satcher made the motion on and mm -hmm. the board approved, they did ultimately submit a lot of internal and financial I mean, they sure. gave them almost everything in the kitchen sink. I mean, they really handed over a lot. Sure. So. Um, Look, anytime you've got a guy complaining that the alt-left cabal is too powerful in Manatee County, you have to question whether you can take him seriously. Well, and for, so for any uh, listeners who watched that Tuesday special me meeting and heard some of the allegations that um, Satcher was laying out about CSAB and about Salvation Army being repeatedly denied. Um, that's what this Sunday reporting really kind of delves into. I'd like to clear that up in terms of, um, you know, I left with questions myself. I wanted to understand um, and I wanted the facts of the situation. So that's really what my Sunday reporting focuses on this week. And mine will focus on explaining this Disney situation with Ron DeSantis, which is actually Goodness. quite interesting. A lot of people did not understand that they have this special self-governance. I had no idea. Uh, I learned a lot in this, um, God, what was the guy's name? Jeremy something had, he was an essay, like long form magazine writer. And he had this collection, it's called Pulphead. And he had this one story about Disney, and it was about a trip to Disneyland, but he gives a lot of exposition on the sort of peculiarities of Walt Disney, who was a very libertarian person. Um, and one of the reasons why, so of course, Disneyland started in California, um, and then when he brought Disney to Florida, he was able to negotiate, because Florida was not the big booming, you know, tourism attraction that it is today, uh, it was a much more mom and pop type, you know, family vacation with these kind of little niche uh, tourist type type businesses. Um, he was able to, with his massive amount of money, negotiate a very, very like unusual and really even for that time, even for, you know, 50, 60 years ago, rarely, you know, non-traditional sort of uh, uh, deal for himself. And in this book, it even went into how he had this designs on ha creating this like libertarian utopia, which I think is what celebration ultimately became, but he wanted to do it somehow where you could only live there for 11 months out of the year or something so that if there were no full-time residents, there would not have to be a local government that was representative of them. So like he could kind of be a dictator over the thing and make it like this libertarian. It was weird, but like that and a lot of other stuff, um, you know, came out in that story. But anyway, this thing, the Reedy Creek, uh, I think it's called the Reedy Creek Improvement District, is this like special district that was created through state statutes that all of the theme parks property is located within. There's no houses and residents within, but they've got their own, uh, uh, this district has its own board, it has bonding power. Um, it has its own like public works. Yeah, and here's, here's the issue that, and this is again, this is the problem with, so of course, you know, we're Ron DeSantis. And they have their own police, fire. Yes. Yep, e every service is provided by the district. Okay. So self-funded in that way. Um, here's the problem though, and the, my, my biggest knock against Ron DeSantis is that you're governing 
you should be governing. You're campaigning, really. You're, you're running for president. And you're legislating from a position of what will score me points in the culture war. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you know, Disney, and this is kind of weird because a lot of people are like, well, Disney shouldn't be political. Disney's been political always. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for, you know, decades, they essentially were the Florida Chamber of Commerce. And they were very political in terms of casino expansion. Disney was the principal entity that kept us from going to a Las Vegas style uh, gaming situation a few years ago when they were looking at that. Mm. Um, legalization of marijuana and cannabis, same thing. So there's been all kinds of issues where they happen to be because they're looking at it from, we want this to be seen as a very family friendly, good, clean fund. So what was their position on marijuana? They didn't like it. They didn't want the legalization. They didn't. Recreation. Okay. Right. So they were aligned with Republicans just in this, you know, I don't know, because it used to always kind of be odd because until the culture war started, Disney's always been a very gay-friendly corporation. And they've always had a high percentage of openly gay employees compared to most other large corporations, mostly because it was a comfortable place to work before that became a very normalized lifestyle out in the open. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- there weren't a lot of places where there was open gay culture in a large corporation uh, 30, 40 years ago. And they didn't run into each other until the culture war stuff over the mm-hmm. don't say gay yeah. bill and so mm-hmm. forth. So Disney initially said nothing as is their, you know, their habit when it comes to ruffling Republican feathers. Cause remember now for what are we on over two decades, we've had nothing but Republican rule at in the governor's mansion in both chambers um, and in all, but you know, a handful of even cabinet level positions uh, and you know, Senator Bill Nelson was, was uh, the only Democrat holding statewide office during that entire time, uh, U.S. Senator. Um, so they tr- they generally tried not to ruffle Republican feathers as it just being good for business. Um, I don't know that they were a conservative-led company in any other sense, uh, like, say, the way Publix is. Publix is more ideologically from the family member owners and more ideologically Republican company. And they tend to get involved in Republican politics more that way. Uh, But Disney, this was kind of the first time. So when they didn't say anything about that legislation, then they got a lot of complaints internally Mm -hmm. and then made a powerful statement from the CEO that, and DeSantis has kind of taken that Trump, like, you know, a position of once you're wrong me, you're dead to me type thing. And just from that position, he decided he was going to go nuclear. Yeah, it's like, this is war. But it's not well thought out. Because Mm -hmm. here's some things like, for example, that Reedy Creek uh, Improvement District has about a billion dollars in bond debt. Um, And then it has all kinds of uh, uh, infrastructural costs, like you just said, from fire and Mm -hmm. police and everything, that will now be absorbed by, what is it? Osceola and Orange County, I think. I think, I think mm-hmm. there's two counties mm-hmm. that, that overlaps in it. And they're now looking, and you know, I heard a couple of those uh, county officials mention this week that, uh, hey, th- we might see like a 20% increase in property taxes in order to fund some of this stuff. Like, wow. and, and then it's undetermined how now you've got to tax Disney instead of having them self right. kind of fund. Mm-hmm. So that's undetermined. And will it be spread out? Like it, what? This is the problem 
of campaigning instead of legislating is that you know you have to govern a state, not just make these moves because it's going to get you on Tucker Carlson that night to dunk on the libs. The libs. Um, We've talked about something before as well. Um, outside of a podcast, I believe it was, uh, you and I had a conversation relating to um, policy and differentiating between, you know, what is policy and and what is like, um, I don't know, a, 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 yeah, and emotionally being right. being led. Um, and, and one of the other downsides <laughs> to this, aside of the policy aspect, is the repercussion, the ripples that go out to the base. I mean, I am seeing now on social media, it is pedophile world. They were out there, um, you know, protesting supporters of Ron DeSantis were, and Donald Trump were, were protesting out front of Disney. They, they put a sign over their front sign there uh, to say pedo world. And it's concerning to me um, that when there is theater politics, revenge politics, policies being made to, to you know. Um, Red meat to the crowd, right? The riling, the, the riling, it seems, it feels to me irresponsible and dangerous Absolutely. based on what we've seen so Absolutely. far in the last couple of years. Um, and I could go on, I think we could. Pizzagate is the I think perfect we, example. I think we right. could mutually sure. go on too about the, um, where that comes from and why we're seeing that so much that, uh, and this is funny, but for politicians or agencies, organizations that, that uh, you know, maybe one political group wants to cancel out is just slap them and brand them as a pedophile, mm-hmm. right? Because who can think of anything more, uh, you know, disturbing and, and non-human sure. than somebody, but they're, it, it's but it's not accurate, right? It is it is being used intentionally for the sake of canceling mm-hmm. out. Um, but again, we don't have all the time to really no, it's open true. that and can of worms, but it bothers me. It bothers me a lot. There's a lot changing also in the sense that like political identity is now wrapping around these really weird things. Like I heard somebody say it the other day, like who would have ever thought that something like, hey, we just had a pandemic and it was this, novel virus that came out of this foreign country and it may have been zoological, meaning it it crossed over from an animal species into the general population, or it could have escaped from a laboratory that was doing experiments with these exact sort of viruses and animals. Mm -hmm. Um, How would, how did we get to a place where if you say one answer, you're almost definitely a Democrat. If you say the other answer, you're almost definitely a Republican. Those aren't political or ideological. None of them have to do with progressive or conservative politics. They're just like theories of an event, but like one side owns one, one side owns the other. And like I said, you could bet probably with 90% accuracy who you identify with based on what you say or what medicines work best against the virus, you can almost definitely (laughs) predict their political affiliation by the answer they give. These odd political identifiers that have nothing to do with traditional core ideological uh, uh, events. And it might be because the actual legislation from both parties outside of the theater and the red meat is almost indistinguishable. 
That's the real problem is that the vast majority of things they pass are in complete agreement with. It's pro-corporation. It's pro-1%. It's pro-big tech. It's pro-big business. It's pro-big oil. Uh, that's where they're all aligned. And, you know, I heard somebody, a friend said something to me recently that really sunk in. She said, I don't care. I'm a single issue voter from now on. I've got a seven-year-old daughter and I'm down to, if you're going to try to take control of her body away, that's it. You know, you're going to appoint these activist judges and everything's about, you know, overturning settled judicial, I'll vote Democrat for the rest of my life because I have a daughter. And I thought about that and I thought, wow, that's unfortunate. I understand. Mm -hmm. She's saying most of what they do have nothing to do with me. Most of the time, they're, right. they're both looking out for but people. But this is that, messing with yeah, my child. This is messing with my child's future as a daughter. I don't want to bring a daughter up in that mm -hmm. kind of world. And I'll vote for the party that says your daughter can have control of her body. And But I thought of how beneficial that is to both parties and why maybe, maybe a lot of the uh, theater over right. reproductive right legislation has come, come back so hard. Yes, you have some wackos out on the fringe that are true believers on that, that, that front. But then you also, I think have a lot of people know that it scores points. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say wackos. I should say zealots who are very, very, you know, certain that they're doing the right thing. But then you have a lot of people that I believe are shills who are saying, Hey, you know, there, there's points to be scored, you know, with this kind well, of legislation. And, and all these culture issues right, but are listen, that. What that does by saying, hey, I'm going to turn that person into a single-issue voter, is it means we don't have to change the other stuff. Right. She's engaged. She's voting. They got her and her team. We got the other people on our team. Right. Let them fight on Twitter and, and at meetings and everywhere else about whether or not you know a woman should have control of her body. And what they're not fighting about is corporate tax rates. What they're not fighting about is income, you know, uh, uh, inequality, um, you know, stagnant wages, uh, inflation, you know, all the other actual policy things that we're not helping them on. Let's just keep them engaged with the theater and let's throw some policy stuff out there so they can fight over it and they'll suck all the wind out. And guess what? Our friends in the corporate media will amplify that over and over and over and over again. You know, you'll hear that Disney, Disney story 10 times more than you will one about, you know, offshoring businesses and, you know, inverse uh, corporate inversions to avoid taxes. All those things that, that are much bigger issues that we don't <laughs> hear about because, oh, the people who buy the commercials and, you know, we have our portfolios invested in would like things to remain the status quo that way. So I think that's one of the reasons that happens. And I think it's one of the reasons it's successful. Yeah. Well, and, um, you know, as we've seen, uh, the result of such things is, is so divisive. I don't know. Did you happen to catch, I don't know if you listen to NPR. I've never asked you that. Um, there was on Florida matters a couple of few weeks ago, a story from Longboat Key. It was a story of Longboat oh, Key. Oh, with the tech company. Repu no, it was oh, uh, Longboat Key Republican Party and, or what is it? Longboat Key Republican Committee and then the Longboat Key Democrats. And I'm, if by some crazy chance somebody is listening that is affiliated with either of those groups, just please forgive me and grant me the grace now that I don't remember specifically the names. But the point being is the chairs of these two groups reached out to one another and decided, let's sit down and start meeting together with a small group of people from and bring Democrats and Republicans on Longboat Key together. I'm going to have to find yeah, that. I listened to the, uh, to the Up First podcast every it, morning. They're referring, the to it, they're referring to it the as a Miracle on the Key, I believe. Oh, I think I saw a thing for that, but I didn't actually. You yeah. should listen to it. Okay. it, it it's pretty 
great. And it really goes to show kind of what you're touching on these, uh, push button, hot button mm -hmm. issues. And then, and where that comes into play where, uh, say you're the Republican, I'm, sure. I'm the Democrat, you are an enemy to me and vice versa. And, and every we, issue we have our talking point. Exactly. Yeah. And it really goes to how that can be addressed on a human level to right. kind of free yourself from that political theater, uh, being held captive to that and, and opening your mind to realizing that in the end, regardless of uh, political affiliation, the vast majority of citizens in America, when they go to bed at night, they, they want for the same things. They hope for the country and for their families and their children, many of the same. And that was one point that in this podcast, uh, both these gentlemen share right off the bat was, you know, what was the what was one of the most surprising things you, you guys have learned through going through this process. And that was something right off the bat was, you know, the first time we sat down and we talked about what are your what is your hopes and dreams and vision for America? What would you most like to see? Um, we all pretty much said the same stuff. And Republicans weren't expecting that of Democrats, and Democrats weren't expecting that of Republicans. And um, so yes, I see it now. It's uh, Florida Matters. Mm -hmm. Longbow Keys Democrat and Republican clubs want to change the conversation. Uh, that's on my NPR One app, so I'm sure you can find it on their website mm -hmm. as well. It was it was a really inspiring listen. I thought. Hey guys, real quick, the Brain Into Times is excited to offer new prices on our advertising products. Right now, a 30 second ad on this podcast is only $99. Our email news, only $99. And our website banner ads, you got it, only $99 buys a whole month. Our publisher, Joe McClash's goal for the Brain Into Times is to be the best source for your local news without a paywall. This only works with support from our advertisers and other generous contributors. We make advertising and contributing easy. Just go to our website at thebradentontimes.com and click advertising at the top banner with over 30,000 engaged readers. $99 is a great value for the advertiser and worth your contribution, small or large, you can support the work we're doing. So we're recording this on Friday. A reminder that if you subscribe on any of the podcast service like Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, Spotify, uh, just look up the Bradenton Times podcast and you'll get a notice when it drops late Friday afternoon. And we've got a great weekend around, um, a whole bunch of good events. If you're listening on Friday, we've got the uh, Alan Mestel's uh, art gallery opening for uh, Images of the Ukraine, mm -hmm. which uh, we featured a lot of Alan's work in the past. Uh, very, very talented. And he was over in Ukraine for a while. And I've uh, seen some of the photos are stunning. Mm -hmm. um, that's taking place this weekend. We've got a story up on that. Uh, there's also a great benefit over Stottlemyers featuring Twinkle and Rock Soul Radio uh, for Women Helping Women. It's a great, great, great nonprofit um, benefit. There'll be a silent on live auction, uh, as well as some raffles and so forth. So a great time that Sunday afternoon at Stottlemyers. There's a whole bunch of good music and weekend sounds, uh, a whole bunch going on musically this weekend. The weather's getting better. Uh, we're back. So get out, support those venues, support those businesses. And thank you for supporting the Bradenton times for Don Kitterman. I am Mitch Maley, and we will see you next week. <laughs>